Well, we are in this amazing section uh, that is describing what will happen when the Spirit comes. Now, in Ezekiel 34, this all started with a picture that we need God himself to come as our shepherd. Uh, Israel had been given over to false shepherds, bad shepherds. And so God says, my solution is I myself will come. I will shepherd my people. Uh, and therefore you see not only like in John 10, but in uh, the end of the book of Hebrews is Jesus pictured as the great shepherd appearing who has come to redeem his people and to lead uh, his people home. In chapters 35 and 36 last week, we looked at the land promise. We spent an awful lot of time uh, looking at the land promise and, and not being able to spend time in some of the teeth of, of what is said here. But that land promise is, is very important, that you have God proclaiming heaven and earth belong to me. My kingdom is uh, of heaven and earth ruling over all things, and we are belonging to that eternal inheritance and a part of that uh, eternal promise. And you might remember as the promise was given there that it was going to be like the Garden of Eden. And so you have a picture of restoration that we are able to belong to God again and that we are able to enjoy proximity and God with us yet again. And, and in the middle of, of, of chapter 36 uh, of Ezekiel, there are some other pictures that describe the transformation that is going to happen with God's people. And they are glorious and beautiful pictures of what God expects his people to do and how God was going to accomplish it. Now, before he can talk about this transformation of God's people and the, the restoration that he's going to accomplish, he gives some pictures about the condition of the people. And, and this is the nature of the good news, is God always has to remind us, here's who you are to appreciate what God is, is going to do. Uh, notice the imagery in Ezekiel 36, and in we'll begin in verse 16. It says there, the word of the Lord came to me, mortal, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath on them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols which they had, with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries in accordance with their ways and their deeds. I judged them. I want you to notice the first picture that God is trying to get across the problem of sin. And sometimes we can get a little clinical with uh, the picture of sin, because we can go over to First John where, you know, sin is lawlessness, and so therefore what sin is is breaking God's law. And that's true, but we shouldn't think of sin like, okay, I broke the IRS code, and so you broke the law, and so now you're in trouble. It, it is far deeper than that to God. And, and I hope you see that with the picture that's given there in verse 17, that, that God says, your sins have put you before me so that you are absolutely contaminated. 
You are deeply defiled before me. You going after your idols and following after your heart, chasing your desires and doing what you want has caused you to be impure before me. You are defiled before me. You are an abomination before me. And that's one of the things that I think we sometimes can miss with the picture of sin. And sometimes we just look at it and go, oh, you know, well, it's a sin. And so, you know, I'm sorry. And and I want you to see that the sense by God looks at it, that it is a polluting. It is a a contaminating, a defiling that that stands before God. And he uses a graphic imagery of, of, of minstrel rags to try to accomplish the imagery of defilement and abomination before God. Your sins are disgusting before God. And that's God tries to give that picture. And then what is interesting is God describes in verses 18 and 19 how he poured out his wrath upon the people uh, because of their idolatry, because of their sinfulness. But you'll notice that as they go into the nations, according to verse 20, the, the nations begin to blaspheme God. The end of verse 20 These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of the land. And so here is this picture that God says, and so as I judged you for your sins, it caused a problem. And the problem is all the nations are looking at it and going, well, you you guys are really great. Great God you have. You guys got ejected out of the land because of what you've done. Now notice what God says, verse 21. I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations in in which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So you notice that God says, I have to vindicate my reputation. And notice that he said, not only for what you did in the land, but he says there in verse 22, because you profaned that my name when you were in exile also. You didn't do any better over there. You might remember <clears throat> Daniel's prayer uh, in Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel 9, you have Daniel basically praying that the 70 years of the exile had expired, and yet we aren't any better. Nothing has changed. We have not improved any. We are not deserving of going back into the land. And God makes this point that he can't initiate this restoration on our part because of us, because we're defiled. There's no basis of righteousness for God to be able to look at us and go, okay, well, because you're doing pretty good, I think I'll make these promises. I, I think I'll, I'll bring you back. I'll, I'll do good by you. You have God always reminding us, I can't act on the basis of you. I have to act on my name, on my glory, and my goodness, if there's going to be any kind of hope for you whatsoever. And so he sets that that picture forward, is that God is going to initiate a radical restoration, but it's going to happen because of God. Now, listen to the pictures that are given about what this restoration looks like. 
In verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all of your countries and bring you into your own land. So what I would say is everything that we did for 40 minutes last Sunday is that point right there. He comes back to the land promise. I'm going to bring you out and gather you and bring you to your inheritance. But again, not merely talking about coming back onto the land out of exile physically, because those promises were there will never be a famine and I will always be your God. And we read that that never happened because of their sins. So he's looking forward to something very important about this eternal inheritance that we're going to enjoy. But listen to the picture of verse 25. He says in verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Now, this is a very vivid image that God gives about what he's going to accomplish for his people. And notice the end of verse 25 describes it. I'm going to cleanse you from all of your idols. Those things that have made you an abomination before me, I'm going to forgive it. I'm going to cleanse it. I'm going to take it away. Everything that has caused you to be worthy of God's wrath, God says, I'm going to erase that. I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you. I'm going to cleanse you of your defilement. And and the New Testament seizes on on that, that image that when the Spirit comes, the stain of sin is going to no longer be on the people. Hebrews chapter 10 Verse 21, since we have a great uh, priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, here's what I don't want you to do when you read that passage is we can sometimes have the tendency to read that passage and go, baptism. I don't want you to do that yet. Uh, I want you to hold off on that idea and just think about what he says here. He says, your hearts are going to be cleansed from evil. There is a picture of an inside out cleansing that is going to happen. It is a cleansing of the heart. It is a cleansing of the conscience. It is a a forgiving of this corrupted heart. It is a cleaning of guilty consciences. All of the stains, all of the marks of sin are being pictured as being erased. All of those stains completely wiped away. Every wrong that you can possibly remember, God is saying, I'm forgiving that. I'm erasing that. I am taking care of those sins. I'm going to cleanse you inside out. That's the idea of a, of a heart that is coming with a, that has been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience is trying to get us a picture of this transformation that God is looking forward to in his people would start in the very heart itself. In fact, you'll notice that's the next line in verse 26. In verse 26, he says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is a really neat picture. Uh, This is a picture that describes, try to visualize like a surgery. A heart surgery is about to happen. God says, here's what I'm going to do. You have in you these stone hearts. And I'm going to put you on the surgery table. And I'm going to have a surgery. And I'm going to take out the heart of stone. And I'm going to put in there this heart of heart of flesh. Now, that imagery is an idea of not being stubborn toward God anymore. A heart of stone is a, is a metaphor for being stubborn against God and a heart of flesh is one that is soft that can be pricked by God that can be changed by God and transformed by God and so here's what he says is my people are going to be different it's going to be an inside out change they're going to be transformed inside out and not only that they're going to have hearts that are not stubborn but rather hearts that are ultimately repentant and fitting along with that in being soft, teachable hearts in verse 27. I will put my spirit within you to cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. I've always enjoyed this statement that God makes. And I want you to think about it for a minute. God says here, I'm going to cause you to walk in my ways. I'm going to make you keep my rules. And you have to sit back and go, okay, well, how are you going to do that? What exactly is that going to look like? Something radical has to happen for the people to now obey God. Because this is the whole problem. What has been Israel's problem? Always disobeying. Always rebelling. From the very beginning, Ezekiel has told us, that Israel has rejected God before he even brought them out of Egypt, they have their idols. Then in the wilderness, they have their idols. In the promised land, they have their idols. You are always rejected me. You might think of Stephen's sermon. How many prophets did you all reject and kill? You have always been in rebellion. So what is going to change so that now people obey? What's going to be different this time? Why would it be any different? That's... I think one of the big questions is how, God, are you going to accomplish this restoration where people are now going to obey you? And especially to use the language, I'm going to cause you to walk in my ways. Now, there's nowhere in the scriptures where you're going to read that God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make them obey me. That's what's going to happen. I'm going to go against their will and I'm going to force them to do what's right. And if that was God's plan, he should have started with Adam and Eve from the very beginning because then we'd all be all right. Clearly, that's not the plan. The plan is not forcing people into obedience. So again, I want you to think about what is God going to do that is going to cause people to want to obey with soft hearts and not stubborn hearts? Because that's what he just promised. Well, Let's see what the New Testament says about that. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Now listen to what he says. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. All right. So here's how he starts. We've been justified and we have access by faith in which we stand. And he describes that this work is accomplishing great things enough. Our suffering produces endurance, character, hope. But then he says, but our hope doesn't disappoint. And then he says this, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. All right, so as a kid, I read that and go, okay, what does he mean by that? What does that look like? What's he talking about? Thankfully, he didn't stop. I want you to notice the very next word that comes after that in, in verse six. For, there's an explanation coming. How is God going to accomplish this great work? For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good one, a good person one would dare to even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to notice the picture. Here's what God says I'm going to do to cause people to want to obey me. And this has to be one of your top 10 favorite passages of the New Testament. It has to be because of the picture that God gives. God says here, here's what I did to demonstrate my love. I wanted to prove my love for you. And here's how my love is going to be poured into your hearts. When you were still enemies, when you were still full of sin, Christ died. And God says, that's going to be the thing to move people from stone hearts to flesh hearts. And he even uses an analogy. Human beings don't even do this for each other. You might maybe think about it for a good person. But can you imagine laying down your life for a scoundrel? Can you imagine forfeiting your life for someone who is worthy of death? You know, can you imagine going to the worst of the prisons in our country, walking in and saying, you know, instead of that person, let, let it be me. I, I know they're deserving judgment, deserving the penalty, but let them go. I'll die instead. Can you imagine? Who would do such a thing? God is trying to communicate something that the cross of Jesus is supposed to be the radical event that causes the heart transformation. What will God do to get people to want to obey him, to no longer be stubborn? What has God done that would be different 
that when you get out of Israel's history and you come into the first century, what will he do now to try to convince people to love him? The cross is the answer. This is how God was going to radically transform people. This was supposed to be the defining moment and the great event that would cause people to want to obey. And if you have your eyes open to it, the New Testament is filled with putting its finger on that connection of that this would be the great work of God that would transform our hearts by the Spirit so that we would become obedient and submissive to Him. Titus chapter 3, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Does that not sound like what Ezekiel said? Ezekiel goes, I can't act on your name's sake. You you have nothing to to operate by. I've got to do it for my name's sake. I've got to do it because of me, not because of you. It's got to be because of my goodness, my loving kindness, according to his own mercy. And then notice the terms. By washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's the same imagery from Ezekiel 36, this merging together of a washing and a cleansing with the renewal of the Spirit coming together. God's great work to cause people to be transformed and desire to obey him and give up their idols and no longer have stubborn hearts would be the goodness and the loving kindness of God on display Proven in the cross. Now, since it's Sunday night, I get to go deeper. So I got to go one step more with you. John 3 is probably one of the more confusing texts of a discussion between Jesus and Nicodemus. So I want to walk through this discussion because it is very relevant to Ezekiel 36 and what they're talking about. In John 3, now there is a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. I I love that. We don't have time for this, but a moment of honesty from a Pharisee. We've been in Matthew's gospel where seeing the Pharisees rejecting signs. And here's Nicodemus going, we know, we know, We, we know you have to be from God. To be doing the things that you're doing. But notice Jesus doesn't go, man, I'm so glad you you got that. So glad you, you know, see that I'm from heaven. Look at Jesus' answer. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus responds to that. How can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb. Now, let me stop here a minute. I don't believe that Nicodemus is being dense or obtuse here. I don't think that's what Nicodemus is doing. I don't think he heard Jesus' words in verse 3 and literally thought that Jesus was talking about an actual physical birth. This is a ruler of the Jews. This is a Pharisee. He knows the scriptures. Jesus just said something pretty amazing. You have to be completely different, born again, 
completely changed, completely transformed if you want to see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus understands the problem with that. How is that going to be possible? How can people be radically changed and transformed to enjoy the kingdom that you're bringing? How could that possibly be? How can we even begin? That's the metaphor. Do I have to start over from scratch as a human being? Because I'm a mess. I've got sins. I've got problems. How can I possibly be born again? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Let me stop there. Water and spirit does not happen a lot in the Old Testament. In fact, it happens here in Ezekiel 36. This combining of washing and water and spirit is an Ezekiel 36 prophecy. Here is this prophecy being given. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean from all of your uncleanness. I will cleanse you from your idols. I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new spirit. I will remove the heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways and to keep my statutes. And so here's Jesus saying, unless that happens, shorthand, born of water and spirit, what Ezekiel said, can't enter the kingdom of God. And that makes sense because what's Ezekiel saying is people are going to be. My new people are going to be radically transformed. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is of born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. I love this. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the spirit. Now, this is not saying, boy, you know, who can just figure out, you know, the spirit. He just does some crazy stuff and you just stand there and, you know, who knows? That's not the idea. Think about the question. How is it possible for us to be a people who are radically transformed to such a degree and so cleansed that you could say they are born again or of a new birth or born from above or born of water and spirit? How could that possibly How could that possibly happen? How could God do something like that? And here's the, the, the basic answer to what you, you see going on, which, by the way, before I get to that, I love how this ends. Nicodemus is asking that. How is this possible? How, how can we have this massive transformation? And I love that Jesus says, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things. You know, what? I, here, here's the fill in. You're a teacher of Israel and you don't know Ezekiel 36. <laughs> you don't know the prophecy that talks about this. Prophecies are clear about this. That what, who's going to enter the kingdom of God? But this restoration is saying, I'm going to have a people who are so different that it would be like describing it as a new birth. They're going to be so radically transformed 
That it's like a whole different person. And what he means there from verse 8 in talking about the Spirit is in, in so many ways it is inexplicable to think about how God is able to cause this radical transformation on our hearts, on our minds, on our desires, on our hopes, concerns, our way of living, everything about how we look at life, how we look at people, how we look at ourselves, and how we look at God completely changes. And there's no formula to sit down and go, okay, now here's how this is going to work when you come to Christ and how you're going to change. Here's what this looks like. Here's here's, here's the step by step. It, it just happens. The heart just starts changing. And the mind just starts changing. And the desires start changing. And the life starts changing. That's what Jesus is saying about the Spirit. This work of what God is going to accomplish on people. It's not going to be a formula. It's not going to be this step-by-step thing. That's when people come to me really struggling with faith. What do I need to do? you got to get to know God. There's no formula. There's no magic wand. There's no, there's no steps. God will transform your heart and your mind and your life if you will come to him. How many times does Paul say that? How many scriptures, how many, how many places in his New Testament writings does he say, what's going to happen? You're going to put off the old self, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and put on a new self. He's always talking like that. That's always what this restoration expectation looked like. A radical transformation that is going to happen as we come to know God and we know his love and we know his son and we know the cross and we know his blessings. We're going to be transformed. And that's what these scriptures are talking about. All right. So let me wrap up with this, this, this big idea. I said in the Hebrews account, I said, don't run to baptism right away. Because the picture is an inside out change. He's not just saying, and my people are going to just jump in bodies of water. That's not what he was prophesying. He's talking about a radically changed people that comes from the inside out. Not just simply changing some externals, but truly different in the heart. Now here's what I think is fascinating. Is when the Apostle Paul writes and says, you know, can we continue in sin that grace may abound by no means, Romans 6. And then he says, don't you know what our baptism meant? Don't you know that your baptism marked a death to sin and coming alive to a whole new way of life? Or a couple verses later, the old self was crucified with him so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. It's marking the occasion. We are declaring in this moment, uh, it's not going to be that life anymore. I'm going to be radically changed. I'm, I'm putting myself on the surgery table. God, give me the new heart. Take out this, this stubborn heart. Take out this heart that seeks these fleshly desires. And I hope that we would think about what God is promising here is that his people 
will be completely transformed in every aspect of life. I grew up in the pews. Dad was a preacher, still is, as you know. And I don't know that I fully grasped this very idea for quite a while. That walking with Christ is not, okay, I'm going to try to do better. I think sometimes it gets portrayed that way. Not be so bad. (laughs) Quit picking the bad things and start doing the good things. But what he's picturing is not just, okay, you'll stop doing these five things that you think are really bad in your life. And now you're, okay, good. Look at me, I'm not so bad now. But that God is going to change you to such a degree that you won't recognize yourself from where you were before. That's the idea of a new birth. It's not that you look a little bit like the old person, but the old person and the new person are not even recognizable anymore. There's a lot to be said for people who will say like, yeah, if you... If you People who knew me in high school wouldn't recognize me now. Good. Good. You should be transforming. Every aspect of your life should be changing. This process of transformation that God is accomplishing through the Spirit on our hearts as we come to know Him and understand what He's done for us, as we stare at the cross and see His love, is supposed to change everything about who we are. And we should not desire that old life. In fact, notice in Ezekiel 36, verse 31. Ezekiel 36, 31. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And notice what he says you're going to do. He doesn't say you're going to remember your evil ways and your evil deeds and you're going to miss them. You're going to really wish you could live that way again. You're going to miss the good old days when you were sowing wild oats and going crazy, following the desires of your flesh. He says, that's not what you're going to be. Those who are born again, he says, there are people who are going to look at their old ways and they're going to loathe themselves for that. They're going to hate that they acted the way that they acted. They said the things that they said. And made decisions the way that they did. They're going to hate the sins that they committed. The Christian does not look back at the old life and go, I sure do miss that. They look back at that and go, I'm glad I'm far away from that. I am glad to be changed. I'm glad to be transformed. And I'll end with this then. Really, I think the big point. If we don't see that we're being transformed, there's only one cause. And that means we're not looking carefully at God and His love for us by time and voice. So go read it yourself. 2 Corinthians 3, Brown verse 16, 17, 18. 
as you are beholding the glory of Christ, you are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. The more you keep looking at God, the more he's going to keep changing you. The more you keep staring at his love, the more he's going to keep working on your heart. The more you keep seeking after him, the more he's going to change all of those various attributes, characteristics, sinful desires. He's going to keep changing you and keep changing you and keep changing you. Now, this is maybe a little bit of bad news. That doesn't happen overnight. So don't get frustrated. Not an overnight process of transformation. But you should see a changing day after day, week after week, year after year, till you get to a point where you look back and that old person is far different from the new self that God has created for you in righteousness and holiness. And thank God that he is able to radically transform a people like that. Nicodemus' mind is blown. How can we possibly see the kingdom of God if new birth is possible? And Jesus' answer is, if you stare at me and you follow me, it's going to happen. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for the surgery that you accomplish in us. Thank you for how you identify our sinful desires and corrupted hearts and that you begin a work of transformation on us. And Lord, thank you for loving us while we were still sinners, while we stood before you defiled and polluted, contaminated and unworthy of any mercy or grace that you would show to us. Lord, it is hard to understand and hard to comprehend the depths of your love to us. But I pray, Lord, that we would continue to be radically motivated and radically transformed as we continue to look at the, the life and sacrifice and death of your son. Lord, help us to behold your glory, to see your loving kindness, and be amazed at all that you've done for us. And Lord, we pray that you would transform the sinful desires that we still have, the areas in our life that continue to need change, areas of weakness, failure. Work on our hearts, Lord. Continue to change us. We pray that we would submit ourselves to that change and accomplish great things in our lives as you make us the people you want us to be. And Lord, we pray that we would live up to our calling, that we are dead to the old self and alive to the new, to live a new way before you. In Jesus' name, amen. I appreciate you all suffering through my horrible voice, and uh, hopefully we'll be good to go by next week. But, uh, what a what a glorious text, and, and I hope that what Ezekiel promised about transformation would give you hope that you can be changed too. 
there's no picture in here that says, well, but you know, if you're really, really evil, God's just not going to be able to change you. God can change everybody. God can change anyone who comes to him and give them a new life and a new heart. We want you to come to him tonight before it's too late. Won't you do that now while we stand and while we sing?